0: Some may think of power, might, authority, dominion. Think of a good leader or a charismatic personality. As Americans, we have sort of a weird relationship with kings. Having thrown off the tyranny of King George, we despise that kind of kingly rule. But at the same time, we are weirdly fascinated by all things royal. The gossip mills and tabloids always have some headlines about the goings-on with the royal household, the longevity of the queen, a scandal of one of the princes, and on and on. We eat it up. Something about the royal household is fascinating, even though the power the British monarchy wields is, is not what it once was. Today is Palm Sunday, and the day we celebrate the kingship of Jesus Christ. One week before his Resurrection on Easter, Jesus strode through the streets in Jerusalem to the loud shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His triumphal entry was his declaration to the public that he is a king. But what kind of king is Jesus? The events leading up to Palm Sunday, which culminated in Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday, Led many people in Jerusalem to reject Jesus as king, mainly because he did not fit the model they had created for the kind of king the Christ was supposed to be. To better understand the kind of king Jesus is, we're going to look this morning at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 as well, but we're going to concentrate on verses 5 through 11. The Apostle Paul sets out a stunning picture of Christ for our emulation. Dealing, as every pastor must at some point, with contention in the body of Christ, Paul encourages the church in Philippi that the model for our mutual relations is seen most clearly in the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus was not a proud king who threw his weight around and arrogantly pressed for what was his by right. Instead, Jesus is a humble king who empties himself, taking the form of a servant and willingly submitting to death on the cross. In outlining the character and attributes of Jesus, he answers what kind of king Jesus is providing the ideal and calling the people of God to conform to it. Because Jesus is a humble king, we must conform to him by having humility in our own relationship. with one another. So let's turn this morning to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible or it's printed for you in your bulletin or in the pew Bible in front of you. We'll begin at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we do give you thanks for this, your word. The stunning depths of the humility of Christ. His self-emptying his willingness to obey even to the point of death, a death as terrible as the cross. And as we're reminded of his sacrifice, of his humility, may we have the same mindset. May we model that kind of humility in our community. So open up this portion of your word and give us ears to hear, we pray. In Christ's name, and amen. This section in Philippians is some of the most staggering poetic images of Christ recorded for us in all of Scripture. There is a depth and mystery here that one sermon could never begin to tease out. Much ink has been spilled over these six verses, but before we even begin to unearth the treasures that are hidden here for us, I want you to notice that Paul's theology is intensely practical. That is, Paul is laying out the theological depths of the incarnation and the suffering of Christ for the very purpose of exhorting the people of God to follow that same pattern. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here, if you were in our Sunday school, we did talk about Bible translations. Here, I think the NIV captures well as in your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ. We say someone is of the same mind when they agree together. When there is unity that brings two people together, they are of the same mind. But as Paul's analogy with Christ proceeds, we see it's not the content of Jesus' thinking so much as the result of his actions that Paul is emphasizing We ought to be thinking God's thoughts after him, conforming our thoughts to his. But what Paul has in mind is a development of the same characteristics in the church at Philippi that Jesus demonstrates as the God-man. The exalted poetic imagery of what some have seen as an early hymn follows the trajectory of Christ's pre-existence to his incarnation, his suffering unto death, which led to his exaltation and his ascension to the Father. So we see every movement in this little few verses. The structure of verses 6 through 11 breaks neatly into two parts. Verses 6 through 8, they form what the catechism calls the estate of humiliation. Humiliation. Christ's descent from heaven. Whereas verses 9 through 11 cover Christ in his, his estate of exaltation where he has ascended to his Father. However, I want to concentrate my comments on verses 6 through 8, showing that the kind of humility Paul is calling us to embody is seen most clearly in the self-emptying of the second person of the Trinity in the Incarnation and the humbling obedience unto death Of the man Christ Jesus. Through this, we'll see more clearly the thrust of Paul's ethical argument for a radical rejection of selfish ambition and conceit and a widespread adoption of the humility of Christ. What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is, as God emptied himself. Notice with me in verses 6 and 7 who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul is describing the pre-existent Jesus who was in the form of God, but willingly set that aside to come and take on the limitations of the form of a slave, a man Paul is showing two mindsets metaphorically so as to see the depths of Christ's humility. He was in the form of God, is parallel to equality with God. Do you see that in the text? Paul's reflecting on the exalted nature of Jesus prior to his coming and taking on flesh, being born of the Virgin Mary, Prior to that, Jesus existed as the exalted second person of the Trinity, equal with God. And because of that high, exalted status, Jesus emptied himself, coming to earth and taking the form of a man. But he, he did not grasp at that quality of exaltation as the second person of the Trinity, meaning something that he would not take advantage of. He did not use his exalted state to his own advantage. He was willing to set it aside. Think about the context that Paul is writing in. The Greco-Roman pantheon of gods were all willing to take advantage of their stations as gods, using their power in capricious and selfish ways. Mankind was there for them to take advantage of. And worship was merely appeasing the gods to not unnecessarily offend them. Think of even just the movies you've seen. The gods are vengeful. They care little for men, save what they can get from them. They use their positions of exaltation for their own advantage. They grasp at that power. Mankind is merely there for them. And that same mindset characterized the Greco-Roman world. For you become what you worship. You become what you worship. And if the kind of gods that you worship are self-focused, are there grasping for power and authority, then what do you think you will be in your politics, in your home, and even in the church? Politics was, in the the Greco-Roman world, grasping at power, seeking to hold it as long as possible. It was throwing your weight around to get what you wanted. It was using your station to your advantage. But in contrast to that, Jesus, who had all the rights and privileges of God because he is God, did not use those to his selfish advantage. This is precisely what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do when he tempted him in the wilderness. Use your power to turn something into bread selfishly, to feed your flesh. Over and over, Satan tempted him to use his power, to use his authority, to use his privilege in ways that were self-centered. Here we see Paul subtly makes a comparison between Christ and Adam. For it can be said of Adam, as of each of us, that the exact opposite is true of that of Christ. Adam did not consider it a good thing to maintain his form as a creature, but he wanted to be in the form of God, seeking to grasp equality with God by taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil of which God had told him not to take. Why? Because he thought that if he took from the tree, he would be like God. He was not content with his station. He was not content that God had made him a creature under God's authority to listen to his word. He wanted to be God. And we have believed that lie ever since. He believed that God was the one who was grasping at power. He listened to the lie of the serpent, which said, God doesn't want you to eat this because he knows you'll be like him. But God had made Adam like him in his very likeness and image. But he listened to that lie and he doubted the goodness of God. And so do we, when we grasp, when we take our positions and we use them for our own glory. Jesus shows us that the true character of God is not grasping, but self-emptying. Now theologians have got themselves into trouble when discussing the nature of Jesus emptying himself. What does that mean? Paul doesn't mean that Jesus was God, but as now he's exchanged that form for that of a slave. Instead, Jesus, in taking on flesh, manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. Jesus reveals God as a servant. He doesn't cease to become God. Jesus is God with us. And that reveals the character of God. It's not as Satan portrayed him in the garden as grasping and stingy. But the very character of God, the very heart of God is self-giving. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. And this is the mindset of Jesus as God that Paul calls us to emulate. How can a people called in Christ to be one body in vital union with him by be marked by the world's, you could say, diabolical characteristics of selfish ambition and conceit? The incarnation is a staggering reality that changes everything. Not that God's gracious, merciful, and compassionate character wasn't seen before, but they come into sharp relief. In the incarnation, as God speaks more clearly of himself and the person and work of his son. I don't want you to miss this. Because when we turn to look at verse 9 through 11. It may look as if God is rewarding him, his son with what pr- properly belongs to divinity. Exaltation. When in reality, he's actually rewarding what properly belongs to divinity. Humility. I don't want you to miss this. We see the very character of God, not in what my, we might typically define as godlike qualities. We might define godlike qualities as using your power for yourself, might, and authority. But rather, the self emptying of Jesus is the actual quality of divinity. In other words, Jesus is not rewarded because he slummed it with us for 33 years. And finally he died and God vindicated his sacrifice by rising him from the dead and elevating him back to his godlike form. No, instead God vindicated Jesus because the very act of condescension shows the character of God is self-emptying and humble. That's who God is. And it's seen clearly in Jesus. And of course, this has deep implications for what it means to be human. Adam was not judged because he wanted to be God-like, but because he misjudged what it was to be like God. God had made Adam like him. But what was that? It wasn't self-aggrandizing. It wasn't For showboating, it wasn't so that he can throw his weight around. It wasn't so that he could use his power for his own good. But for Adam to be like God, he would be humble. He would be giving of himself. The true nature of God is not a selfish using of others because I can, but an emptying for the sake of others. Adam listened to the serpent's definition of God, which was wildly off-base. And he sought to be like the serpent's definition of God, which was grasping and selfish. And Jesus came to embody, to show forth the true character of God as one who doesn't consider his status something to use to his advantage, but instead gives himself to another. Jesus didn't lose one ounce of his divinity when he emptied himself, but instead he put it on full display This is who God is. The self-emptying God. What about you? Are you a weak husband because you seek your wife's good over your own? Are you an indulgent father because you want your kids to have the best at your expense? What would it look like to live this kind of self-emptying, self-giving life? Husbands, you may think if I follow the commands of Jesus and die to myself loving my bride as Christ loved and gave himself for the church, then I will never get my way. Precisely. And in that, you will be like Jesus. You will be like God who had made you to be in his image. You may think your identity will get lost in serving her, but Jesus' identity wasn't diminished when He gave himself for you. Instead, his true character was manifested. And wife, what would your identity be, what would your identity be lost if you served your husband with no care for yourself or your identity? What if instead of using your place as a help me to manipulate in exploitive ways, you gave yourself away in obedience to him? You trusted him and worked for his good, not your good at his expense. Imagine if both of you were that self-giving. I dare say you would have the scenario Paul envisioned of outdoing one another and showing honor. And what a display of God's glory our marriages would be if that were so. For they wouldn't preach a petty, self-serving gospel, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, a self-emptying gospel that counts others as more significant than ourselves. And what if this self-giving gospel made manifest in our marriages, produced produce children who did the same? And if it bore fruit in marriage, why not in the broader societies we come together as a church? Paul's whole point Then we would be a society whose unity shows forth the beauty and diversity of the Trinity. Paul's whole argument is that the church in Philippi is not living consistent with who they are as the body of Christ. As long as selfish ambition and conceit are the dominant operating procedures, the church does not resemble God, but resembles the world. We crave and imagine being a king, Jesus being a king who will give us power, authority and dominion and while we may say to ourselves i would never be in the crowd who yelled crucify him crucify him sadly the same crowd only days earlier yelled hosanna blessed is he who came comes in the name of the lord we need to be constantly on guard against our redefinitions of what kind of Jesus, what kind of king Jesus is, what kind of God Jesus embodies. Because Jesus is a, a humble king. We must conform to Him by having humility in our relationships with one another. But Jesus If it's audacious that God would empty himself and take on the form of a man, it is equally humiliating that the man Christ Jesus would willingly submit to death on a cross. But that is exactly what God did. Even by becoming human, a stretch to begin with. God humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death. Bad enough. But death on a cross? We don't have the same image of a cross that the Romans and the Greco-Roman world had. It would not have hung on their neck. It was a brutal instrument for torture. It was the worst of deaths that was not allowed for anyone who was a Roman citizen. It was for slaves and foreigners. The worst in society. It was a cruel and difficult death. God was willing to go where we fear to go. Where for us, there is no coming back. Namely, death. Would you give your life for someone else? We might like to think we would. But I wonder when push comes to shove, would I have the courage? Especially when the rest of my life says otherwise, right? When most of my life is spent for myself, why in that crucial moment would I give up my everything that I've preserved? Why would I give up my life? For what else is selfish ambition and conceit if not an unwillingness to die? The very word selfish says I am more important than you. You may be willing to sacrifice your life for someone in death, but passing up the promotion for someone at work is unbearable. Is it really dying to yourself when instead of cultivating intimacy with your wife by meeting her needs, you retreat into pornography? Or, wife, are you really willing to die to yourself when you seem to have a headache every time he tries to cultivate intimacy? You see, husband and wife have both cultivated creative ways not to die to ourselves. But we've disguised them as dying. We're masters at convincing ourselves that our selfishness is actually dying. But this is the only because we have come to define suffering as antithetical to the life God wants for us. Suffering is something to be avoided at all costs, even at the cost of loving our neighbor. Because in reality, your neighbor might expect something of you that may cause you to suffer. What then? Here, the vision of the Christian life clashes violently with the vision of the American dream whose gospel is is not to suffer, no matter the cost. Why do I rail against the American dream? Is it because I'm a liberal and I'm embarrassed? No. It's because the American dream as consumerism, as individualism, is antithetical to the gospel. We lead the world in America in decadence in sexual licentiousness and self-indulgence? Why do I rail against the American dream? Not because I'm not patriotic. Not because I would not fight for freedom, which I did. Not because I think there is a better model for government, but because all human governments that do not embody what Jesus embodies here in Philippians 2, 6-11, are diabolical. self-emptying, and humility are to be the backbone of the society of the church. But sadly, the church has not tried to conform to Christ, but has adopted the ideals of the state or business. It's It's competition and it's consumerism. As the church follows these models, they're constantly changing the message, tailoring it to an environment to cater to the needs of our narcissistic culture that prizes individual autonomy over humility. The culture around you has done a great job of catechizing you so that very subtly, almost unwittingly, you begin to adopt its values. Instead of cultivating the virtue of humility, you've been conditioned to look out for number one, to get yours, no matter the cost. Individualism and consumer-driven Capitalism have come together, producing communities driven more by competition than a mutual looking out for one another, making Paul's point hard for us to digest. But it also makes the central message of this letter so vital for our reformation. What kind of king is Jesus? He is the kind of king that would willingly go to the cross, even if he personally does not deserve it. Jesus is a humble king. Humility was not a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. It was weakness. Jesus subverts that by showing that humility is not weakness. It's an ability to see someone as more significant than yourself. Being humble is a refusal to judge by the world's status measurements. And to be sure, those change from age to age, culture to culture. It is now not socially advantageous to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But it used to be. We have watched as our culture has rapidly changed the ideals of status. Sometimes flipping them on their heads. I've said before, that the engine that drives intersectionality is envy, but in reality is no different than the problem facing the church in Philippi: Selfish ambition and conceit. Humility refuses to use cultural status in selfish, exploitive ways just because you can. Humility is cruciform. That is, it's in the shape of a cross. We model humility in our community, in our homes, and in our marriages, and relationships with others by being willing to die to ourselves and our selfish desires. Paul says, I want you to imagine what your community would look like if you embodied Jesus, who." emptied himself of all that he could have grasped after, all the power and might and authority and dominion, and said, I'm going to give myself for these people who are hateful and in their selfish ambition and conceit will crucify me and I'm going to give my life for them. What if you did that for your neighbor? What if instead of avoiding them, you pressed in to the hard places, knowing that they may ask you to borrow your ladder? They might even ask you for your pickup truck. They might ask you to do things that will lead to your suffering. Suffering. But in the midst of that, you will embody a gospel of a self-giving God who willingly went to the cross so that you could have life, so that you could be freed from what you lay in bondage to before, sin and death. What kind of king is Jesus? He's a humble king who emptied himself by taking the form of a man and humbled himself to the point of death. On the cross, in this action, we see the very heart of God. That is who God is. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But the description of Christ clarifies that the sent son willingly emptied and humbled himself, not for some reward, as if there was a need he had or or something lacking in the Godhead. That's not why Jesus came. But instead, the man Christ Jesus in his person reconciled God and man. Reconciling God and man and bringing man into the fullness of that union and communion with the Trinity. God the Father vindicated the Son, accepting his self-emptying and humbling death and exalting him by bestowing on him the title Lord, which includes the universal worship which that name or that title deserves. Here, Paul, in verse 10 and 11, is quoting from Isaiah 45, 23. Isaiah says, and this is God speaking, By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The me spoken of in Isaiah is Yahweh. God. So the Father's vindication of Jesus is not a promotion to a place that he didn't have before, but it is a revelation to the world of Jesus's equality with the Father as Lord. Jesus is Lord is the fundamental confession that we all make, meaning also that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. This exaltation is also a revelation of the character of God as a condescending, self-giving love. Love that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, is patient and kind. Love that does not envy or boast. And it's not arrogant or rude. Love that does not insist on its own way. is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings. But rejoices with the truth. A love that bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. A love that never ends. And that love is the self-giving, emptying, humbling to the point of death on the cross. Jesus. That is that love. That Jesus perfectly manifested when he came in humility to be your king. Paul's argument for community life built on love is patterned on Christ himself. It is therefore an argument of how much more if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, was humble and poured himself out for the good of others, how much more you who are already in the form of a servant. And have never occupied such an exalted state. How much more should you count those in Christ as more significant than yourselves? Paul is calling them to cultivate the same mindset, the same way of being as they have seen and experienced from Christ. Do you see why the petty sins that disrupt our unity are absurd? When you compare them with the immensity of Christ's sacrifice, how can you not forgive your brother or sister? Or even worse, how could you treat somebody that way? But if you don't, if you don't keep Jesus right there, if you don't see the self-emptying of Jesus and his humility, if you forget that, you will adopt what the culture is selling you. Humility, is, it's not on offer. And you will fall into using your power, whoever has it at the moment, you will adopt the culture's ideals and you'll model your community, your marriage, your family life, your church, your state, your nation. All of it will be modeled on an ideal that is selfish, selfish ambition and conceit. And its end will be this disunity that plagues all of our communities because of sin. So we have to keep Christ right there. And we have to remember that Christ is not doing something different, but he is fully manifesting and revealing the very heart and character of God. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Oh God, we are not humble. We are proud and arrogant and we are like worms who exalt ourselves saying, look how much higher I am than that other worm. Not recognizing that we are nothing in comparison with you. And yet you came and you took on that form and you suffered and died so that we can be reconciled to you so that we don't have to give in to those petty ways of measuring status and power that we can give of ourselves even if it means giving of ourselves to the point of death because we know we know that we will share also in your exaltation that just as christ was raised from the dead we too will be raised to newness of life let us model that in our communities as we live as husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters in Christ, may we shine as a light in the midst of this world that is so confused and may the gospel so be evident in all of us that they see the very heart, the very character of God and the humble King, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen, saints, let's